If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Sixty years ago, on the 13th of August 1961, the Berlin Wall went up, dividing the German city in two for almost 30 years, until the barrier was dramatically torn down in November 1989. In today's special episode, we're bringing you the reflections of three men who were in Berlin during this key episode of Cold War history. You'll be hearing from Major General Sir Robert Corbett, who was a young officer in the city when the war went up in 1961, and was also Commandant of the British Sector in 1989. Joining him is the journalist Mark Wood, a former editor-in-chief of Reuters, who was a reporter based in East Germany during the 70s and 80s. And completing the panel is the broadcaster Alastair Stewart, who covered the fall of the Berlin Wall for ITN. Chairing and introducing the conversation is Ian McGregor, an author and publisher who wrote the 2019 book Checkpoint Charlie, The Cold War, The Berlin Wall and The Most Dangerous Place on Earth. It's Ian's voice that you'll hear first. Our talk today attempts to capture this period through the memories of three exceptional people who happened to be in Berlin at key moments in its Cold War history. Major General Sir Robert Corbett was, in 1989, the Commandant of the British Sector in Berlin, who, also as a young officer in October 1961, had watched the wall being constructed. Mark Wood was a journalist for the Reuters news agency, living and working in East Germany in the 1970s and 1980s, reporting on what was really going on amid the regime's regular press briefings of their stunning economic success that they were portraying to the world at the time. As he is today, Alice Stewart was a well-regarded news broadcaster and journalist who travelled out to Berlin within hours of the Berlin Wall, opening its gates, to bring this incredible story to a British audience on the ITN News. So thank you very much, all of you, for agreeing to join me today to talk about uh, the Berlin Wall. If I may start uh, from the beginning, Robert, 
uh, seeing as you were the first uh, witness of the panel to wi- uh, to see what was going on in 61. You joined the Irish Guards in 1959. What was your reaction to the building of the Berlin Wall in August 61? Uh, by 61, I was a lieutenant, a platoon commander of a reconnaissance platoon in an armoured brigade, the 4th Guards Armoured Brigade, based just outside Dusseldorf uh, in Hoberard. And we were, of course, very much aware uh, what was going on. But it's interesting to me now to remember that there was no change in our state of alert and there was no change in our training pattern. Of course, it was a shock, but certainly in my case, you know, I was pretty young and, and carefree and we got on with our lives, but keeping a, a pretty close eye on what was happening. And to me, this is interesting because I remember very clearly, you know how it is, you remember those extraordinary moments in life, uh, the assassination of President Kennedy, my company commander coming down the steps and saying, Robert, Robert, something very serious has happened in the United States. We then started um, outloading our ammunition. We moved out to hide areas and so on. So there's a very noticeable difference, remarkable difference between what happened then uh, and what happened with the building of the wall. Okay. Uh, In my book that I talk about, Checkpoint Charlie, uh, we discussed in detail an eventful first journey for you into East Germany aboard a supply train bound for the British sector in Berlin after the wall had gone up. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yes, uh, this was a a very early train. Um, I I think in part what uh, we were tasked with doing was checking out the line because there was certainly a fear that there would be a hiatus in that link uh, between West Germany uh, and uh, West Berlin. And so I was given uh, with my platoon charge of uh, this resupply train very early on. We joined the train in Braunschweig in Brunswick, uh, and took over uh, our equipment and so on, which was actually held in a guards van uh, with our weapons at the back of the train. Uh, and we crossed over uh, at the into the German Democratic Republic, the GDR East Germany, at the Marienborn uh, checkpoint, where it was my task to go and take our documentation uh, to the Soviet authorities, marching down a long platform, with the two of my biggest soldiers that I could find with me uh, to present my documentation. And and, uh, after we'd got across into the other side, we were provided with an East German driver, and his one aim was to cause us grief and to cause us trouble. And uh, he was continually stopping and starting the train. We went across just after last night, and around about 2 o'clock in the morning, after all this stopping and starting, we reached Magdeburg. And it was interesting to see that the great tank workshops there at two o'clock in the morning were working. That was obviously a 24-hour operation. Uh, and each time that the train stopped, I had been told, my orders were very clear, get this train through to West Berlin. Don't allow it under any circumstances to be looted. Don't allow any refugees to get onto it and get into West Berlin, as they may well want to try and do. Uh, And so all night long, my soldiers had been, whenever the train stopped off and patrolling it, uh, and it was here in the very early hours of the morning, just after first light, east of the Elbe, after we passed by Magdeburg, first light was just coming up, and we passed, moving very slowly, quite a large group. I think there must have been 10 or 12 of them 
of people's false polizei, but railway police, armed with those nasty little Russian submachine guns with the Rhine magazines and the vented barrel. You may recall seeing those at some time. Uh, we passed these people. I didn't think any more about it. The train then came to a shuddering halt. And here I made a really potentially very serious mistake. Instead of uh, asking my soldiers who'd been up all night long to get out and go and do the patrols, uh, I took my platoon sergeant and myself, with he on one side of the train, myself on the other, uh, went up to the front end of the train to carry out this patrol. And uh, we were just up the far end, not far off the engine, when suddenly with a great hissing of steam and clanking and everything, the train started to move. So we jumped, I said, get on. We both jumped onto the, it was a petrol wagon, fuel wagon. And I said, get the brakes on. And there were those wheel things. And we both wound down like maniacs. And there was a sound like a thousand wolves all howling and the train continued to gather speed. And looking back down the train in the early morning light, I could see that one of my soldiers had uh, was in trouble, big trouble. Uh, what had happened was that the East German police had uh, come up in the back of the train, found him off the train, tried to arrest him, and he had thrown... He was an immensely strong man. He was called Gosman Kelly, 46. There were so many Kellys in the Irish God, they ought to be recognised with a number. And this man, who was not probably um, queuing up for membership of Mensa, uh, very strong but not very bright, threw this guy to the ground, and so... My sergeant and I ran down the train carrying our weapons, managed to get him and get ourselves onto the platform at the back. And I ran inside, actually, pulled on the air brake, and the whole train came to an absolutely grinding halt. Whereupon a furious argument arose between ourselves and the uh, East German police, conducted by myself, because I'm a German speaker, from the back of the train. And they were saying, effectively, release this man to us, uh, he's been trespassing on the sovereign territory of the GDR, and he is our prisoner, and you ought to release him. And I said, you be off in in, in uh, short order. Long argument, uh, and during which my soldiers thought, well, I think we must support our young officer, and they all cocked their weapons. Well, you know what that means when you do that. It's the preliminary to opening fire, whereupon the people's police cocked their nasty and submachine guns, and I could there see the seeds of a Third World War. It was very tense. But eventually they realised they weren't going to get anywhere uh, and they backed off and went off into the gloom. Uh, and we, it took us a long time to get the air, break, uh, air out of the braking system of the train, but eventually got underway. I had a radio, so I was able to explain um, to Berlin that we were going, without saying too much about it, what, that we were going to be very seriously delayed. And 14 hours later, uh, we arrived in, uh, uh, in the great marshalling yards in Spandau where I saw to my soldiers and then took myself off to the brigade headquarters in Berlin, thinking, this is you for court-martial, Corbett. And I explained myself to the brigade commander, Brigadier Rex Whitworth it was. And he, I said, I'm very sorry, sir, if I've done something wrong. He said, no, you have not. You've done exactly the right thing. And we're going to look after you. And don't worry. And we will show you what we've got to show you here. Remarkable goings-on in this place uh, and everything will be all right. But it was a pretty um, solitary experience for a, a young lieutenant. And in the end, it worked out all right. Dramatic. So you're obviously, uh, you've got to Berlin and uh, you've uh, 
if the supplies have arrived, then you know you're not in any trouble. But what, did you take time to go and see the wall itself? And what did you think about it when you did? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once we had uh, carried out our task and handed over uh, the equipment and stuff for which we were responsible, we were then put up in the, very kindly and very nicely put up in the barracks there. Uh, and we were taken uh, round um, to, to see what there was to see. My first impressions of Berlin were, of course, of extraordinary drabness, of an extraordinary atmosphere, really, actually, to be honest with you, of menace, of kind of threat, really. Uh, and then um, we were taken to the Reichstag, the huge German parliament building right on the junction of the spray there beside the Brandenburg Gate, which then was a complete wreck. It was burnt out right up to the ceiling, complete hollow wreck, uh, with a whole lot of um, Cyrillic uh, graffiti on the walls and so on. And there was a long steel ladder leading up into the southwest corner of the building where the British Army, the British garrison, had established an observation post. And uh, I climbed up this with my soldiers. And there at the top was, the, was this observation post being manned. Uh, and looking down, there was the beginning of the construction of this wall, a lot of APCs and water cannon and everything else. And uh, so that was really my, um, my first uh, impression. And actually, at that time, it was really very, it was, it was threatening, of course, but it was actually very exciting as well. Uh, and remarkable to see this great threat, you know, from just the other side, uh, actually to see it in action. So that, that's from a, a soldier's perspective. But if I can bring in uh, Alistair and Mark now, as, as I, would, I would surmise schoolboys growing up in the early 60s, uh, and obviously Alistair, with your, your background, with your father being in the Royal Air Force, what, what, what were your thoughts of the time? I was intrigued by something that Robert said, and that was the assassination of Jack Kennedy. And I was 11 at prep school, boarding school, because Dad, because Dad was in the Royal Air Force. Um, and we were marched by the Benedictine monks uh, into the school chapel uh, to pray that there wouldn't be a world war. Uh, the other thing that strikes me listening to the compelling testimony of Robert is that as a schoolboy, and as a teenager subsequently, I don't think that Berlin and the Wall impacted upon us half as much as the Cuban Missile Crisis and the concept of um, United States of America versus the, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. I think the tipping point for Eastern Europe was 1968 and the invasion of Czechoslovakia and Dubček being sent off into the forest and the rest of it. Um, but, but as you say quite rightly, um, I was born into a Royal Air Force family. Um, and at this juncture, my father was... Uh, in bomber command uh, in the old days of the uh, the v bombers he commanded a squadron of valiants um he subsequently became officer commanding operations at raf scampton uh, and all the rest of it um and and, and as i've <laughs> as i've said to you before you know we grew up with v bombers at the bottom of our garden um and the sole purpose of those was to go uh, on qra three minutes notice um if the balloon went up um and and I guess quietly that was the backdrop to my growing up. But I genuinely believe to this day uh, that it was macro superpower conflict that haunted our childhood much more than Berlin. Okay, yeah. good to know. Uh, how would you feel, Mark? Uh, it's exactly the same. It's kind of in my, I, I recall sort of Cuba and Berlin all being rolled into one big scary scenario. And just uh, I have a 
recollection that at school, I was at primary school, we had to do this practice of crawling under desks, which was the nuclear uh, attack <laughs> defence in case of uh, the sirens would go off and we all had to crawl under desks because that was going to protect us from a nuclear attack. Madness. Absolutely. Madness. But that's, that, and that was frightening. Then you thought, oh, this is a scary world. But it was, all rolled, it, it was all one, uh, yeah, Cuba and Berlin, all one big menace. We still did that at primary school in the 70s as well. Really? Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, think one, I think one of the other weird things, and Mark and I know each other extremely well, he used to be my boss at ITM, uh, as well as being a, a profoundly good journalist in his own right. Oh, it's you, always struck me as being weird that in this period... Uh, just cast your mind back for a split second to the Giles cartoons. Yeah. You had square-jawed, square-shouldered Russian citizens, Soviet citizens, and it was part of the humour, like the fat bag lady at the bottom of the garden and the rest of it. And and we Brits were capable of thoroughly enjoying Giles cartoons in, I think it was the Daily Express every, every week or whatever, whilst... As, as, as Robert just described, there were people being shot, being gouged and torn to shreds by the razor wire in the canal, etc., etc. On reflection, that has always struck me as being supremely odd, but I guess it's the kind of role of satire. True. So, so Robert, I mean, one of the things I, you and I have spoken about before is, were, were you surprised that these Germans pretty much got a green light to carry on doing what they did and building the barrier pretty much unmolested? Yes, Ian, I think so. I'd just like to go back to something that Mark, very, to my mind, very interestingly said about it reminds us, really, of the business of getting under desks and so on. I was the NBC nuclear, biological, chemical warfare officer in my battalion responsible for instructing the whole battalion, really. And I'd been, I was trained in Port and Down. And, uh, you know, our plans were so bloody rudimentary, like blocking up, uh, heading for the cellars, blocking up all, all the exits, getting all our equipment, uh, our NBC equipment and so on sorted out. One of the things I had to do was I had a whole lot of radioactive sources kept in a bunker, and it was my job to check the Geiger counters, actually. We had the radio uh, equipment to make sure that that was all up to scratch. And it is extraordinary, really, to think about that, you know, where we would have been if there had been nuclear exchange. So I was very interested to be reminded, uh, Mark, by what you said. Uh, yes, uh, about um, West Berlin, of course, the awful thing really was that the West Berliners, I think I'd be right in saying, were absolutely distraught uh, about the, uh, there's plenty of witness of this, uh, about the, the building of the wall, and had to be held back by the, Excellent West Berlin police. But it's important too to remember that, I mean, there were 7,000 troops of the National Volksarmee close by with about 100 tanks as well, very close by, uh, and then all the Grenztruppen and everybody else. Uh, and then with that hugely formidable outer ring of, there were 55,000 Soviet troops in close proximity to Berlin. That's larger than the British Army of the Rhine. Uh, and all these things really um, came together to make it, I, I think, uh, pretty difficult to think about having a go at knocking the thing down. But really, you know, I spoke to a lot of my my West Berlin friends about this. Is what you said to me, you know, why you had the opportunity, you you Western allies, you had the opportunity to use your bulldozers, use sappers, and, and knock it down, uh, and you probably would have. Got away with it. But I've got something here, actually, which I was thinking about just the other day. 
Henry Kissinger was the advisor to the United States National Security Council in 61, and he said this, the problem was it was all very well to make nuclear threats until you examine what the consequences will be. And it was very difficult to come up with contingency plans in which there was any kind of rational outcome that was foreseeable. You could make a plan for a military move on the Autobahn, and we did have plans for that, actually, but you'd very quickly reach the limit of your capabilities, and you would then have the onus and the responsibility escalation. So that takes it way out, obviously, to the other side of the Atlantic and beyond Berlin. But within Berlin itself, I think the expectation of the Berliners was, you know, the Western allies, they, they must do something about it. They will do something about it. And, uh, you know, I, I just think in a way, there was an opportunity, but it was an opportunity that was absolutely fraught with peril. So maybe, but you can't rewrite history. Uh, it was not to be in it didn't happen, as we know. Uh, yeah, I suppose it's because some of the, uh, especially the American military police that I interviewed from 61 at the time, were saying uh, there were many cases where East German border guards or militia mainly, with their, like you were saying, with their, their Russian-made submachine guns, would shout across to them, obviously in German, saying, we don't have any bullets in our guns. Why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you knocking these fences down? Because obviously that's what they built right at the beginning was barbed wire fences. And I suppose it's like you're saying, that, that was on a very personal level, right at the front line, whereas on the macro strategic level, there's a, it's a whole different ball game with a lot more deadlier consequences. They were the Kampfgruppen who were not probably entirely trusted. I think you'd find that the People's Army mm. would actually have had live ammunition. And I suspect at that time, they might well have been prepared to Use it. So the question is, you know, was this a risk that was worth taking? Uh, yeah. God, it's so difficult, isn't it, to say now? But um, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But it didn't happen. That's the thing. Okay. So as we move through the 60s, uh, the question I was going to ask you, Alistair, was uh, it becomes obvious that the intra German border and the Berlin Wall itself, there's a uh, a deadlier policy at play with shoot to kill or stop at any means necessary. Uh, was that widely reported in the in the press, in the Western press, in the British press? I, I I would defer to Mark, but 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 my my genuine impression, and it, it, from a sense of profound guilt from my predecessors, no. Mm. Um, I I genuinely believe that it was one of those things uh, that that was was a given. Uh, and, and you know there used to be the dreadful thing in 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 a newsroom, and Mark will remember this very well. That the old PA ticker machine, um, if if one soldier was killed in Northern Ireland, it would go bonkers. Um, if if twenty and, and there's an escalator, you know, twenty in France, fifty in China, etc., etc., etc. And if one poor soul or family were killed trying to escape across the Berlin Wall, um, I think people would just move on and report on the next miners' strike or whatever it might be. Um, and I. I, 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 the other thing that strikes me as being really weird, and again, I love these conversations because picking back upon something that uh, that Robert said about the the degree to which the common foot soldier in the East knew what was going on on the macro level that that, that Kissinger clearly was talking about. I, I suspect that that whether it was in the Ministry of Defence or the Pentagon or wherever, it wasn't until Gorbachev happened 
that anybody was prepared to consider that nightmarish challenge that Robert described so eloquently. Once they knew there was a chance that you know this may run, we may get away with with uh, with backing an uprising without the nuclear weapons going off. Um, then it's worth it. And as I've said to you in in, in when we've talked before, Ian, that I remember standing there in November 1989 having reflected upon all of those conversations I had with my father as a teenager. Classically, I was a bit of a lefty band the bomber type, and dad clearly was a Royal Air Force officer and bomber command, standing there thinking the old bugger was right. (laughs) Mutually assured destruction uh, has held us to superpowers or NATO and the Warsaw Pact at bay until the world shifted and allowed this thing to happen. Could I say something, Ian, which is a bit bit off track here, but... um, just to say to Alistair, if I may, please, I had a lot of doings with the RAF. I was a para, so I spent a lot of time being cared for by the RAF. And all I want to say is you must be very and rightly proud of your father. They're a marvellous service. They always uh, get, set the highest standards. And in Berlin, in the context of what happened in Berlin, the contribution made by the RAF was absolutely invaluable. I just wanted to say that. I'm not going to say anything more. Mm. Forgive no, me for interrupting. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the other thing, I, I hugely appreciate that, and, and um, the man and all of his colleagues and friends live happily and proudly in my memory. Uh, but the other thing, which which you, Robert, will know, and I suspect Mark as well, is that those quick reaction alert crews sitting in their Vulcans, Valiants and uh, Victors uh, knew that the chances of them actually returning uh, were close to zero. Yeah, mm. They knew that, and so did yes. the officer commanding mm. operations at RAF Scampton. So as we're as we're going into the seventies, I want to bring you, Mark, into the conversation. Uh, tensions were obviously at ease by then, even though the, the 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 barriers separating Berlin are getting more deadlier, as was the inter-German border. Uh, East Germany is becoming rehabilitated, so to speak, in in the world's eyes. Uh, I can remember East Germany playing West Germany in the World Cup in 74, I think it was. <laughs> yes. uh, and it, everything seemed very normal. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I was even going on camping trips with the scouts for these Germans. Uh, so, I mean, wh- what was it like uh, for you going there, living there uh, during this time? Well, on one level, it hadn't changed in some ways from, from what Robert described as sort of drab and menacing. Um, the one of, amazing thing about the Berlin Wall was it, it really did divide two worlds. Um, I lived in the East, but used to go to the West regularly, and it was quite schizophrenic. Um, West Berlin was a buzzing, vibrant, very modern, very colourful city, full of wonderful shops and restaurants and bright, flashy cars. East Berlin was just drab. It still had wartime ruins. Everything was grey, crumbling facades. People had sort of poor, cheap clothing. The place smelt because of the um, exhaust fumes from the two-stroke cars and from the um, the brown coal, which they used for heating. So it, it, was, it was sort of drab and what you expected communist societies to be like in those days. On the other hand, it was actually doing better than most of the neighbouring communist countries. So there was a degree of growing affluence, um, but... Um, a lot of it depended on getting gifts from West German relatives and friends that uh, flooded into the country all the time and money. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, it, but it was, 
It was a yeah. It, it was a it was a dour, drab place, but it was quite a. It had its own charms. Um, the people were very friendly uh, because they had to kind of support each other. There, you you. The people. It was a closer society in many ways, and I had a lot of friends. And once you and you realize that you know half of conversation would be about it was all shortages of everything, but everybody was always discussing what was available where, and uh, what you could trade. Mm. Um, if somebody got hold of something, maybe they wanted something else, and so a lot of discussion was around how you got hold of material things, and life was starting to improve. I mean, people, there were imports of fresh fruit, for example, which was unusual. There were sort of uh, people were were getting better clothes and they were starting to import cars. So life was steadily improving, but it was such a long way behind uh, the West. And they were very aware of that because most East Germans, except those in the South, watch West German and West Berlin television and had a very clear idea of what life in the West was like. Plus they had all these visits from their relatives and friends. Mark, do you, Mark, do you do you also remember those extraordinary tower blocks that you could see yes. from the west as you glanced yes. over? Exactly. When we went over in November '89, and, and, and Robert will know this as well, I was amazed to see that they may be fourteen stories high, but they were one room thick. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, and a lot of them, it, and they it was were all built for the view. <laughs> yeah. And they were built, and they were built to block out the view of Axel Springer's. Tower block, yeah, uh, right, right, built on the wall, which are bright neon signs on the top, uh, and you just didn't see neon. I mean, even the power of the streetlights was lower than um, mm. in West Berlin. Mm. But um, it, yeah, it was it was changing, but it was it was drab and it was repressive. You were mm. aware of the military, the police, and the snooping. There was still a lot of uh, when you got off the main drags. There was still an awful lot of uh, damage, wasn't there? You know, yes. from uh, weaponry and so on from the yes still a lot of lot of war ruins the mm. gendarmen mart which is now a beautiful square with two the two the german and french cathedral and the schiller theater was still a war ruin uh when i went there still collapsed buildings uh that they started renovating that in the 80s and then it started to look a lot nicer and you might want to tell listeners you, you actually resided in the same flat as a previous owner, uh, Frederick Forsyth. Oh yes, did old Freddie? Yes, no. East Ber- <laughs> the East Berlin flat, Reuters flat. Uh, it was the office and the flat were together in Prenzlauerberg, in uh, uh, um, sort of the centre of East Berlin. Beautiful old building, falling down in those days. I mean, that was another thing. You had balconies would suddenly fall off buildings, and now it's a very chic area. It's very expensive. Um, Freddie, Freddie was a previous uh, resident about. Uh, or oh, about 14 years before I was there. But he'd nearly set off World War III by mistaking a collection of tanks rumbling through the city uh, in 1964. He thought it was the um, Russians and East Germans preparing to invade West Berlin. But in fact, it was a rehearsal for a May Day parade. Uh, <laughs> and he sent out alerts around the world saying, tanks, tanks massing at, uh, at uh, the Brandenburg Gate. Uh, it's, uh, it was, it was, which was still in the files. Um, <laughs> uh, the journalism story. of never wrong for long. Like, no, that's right. He did one of those wonderful rowbacks in the early hours of the morning, saying, "Oh, all was quiet in East Berlin after overnight reports." And uh, but at that stage, he was in such disgrace that he got pulled out shortly afterwards. I, I love hearing these stories. It's really good. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, Mark, you you were pretty much heavily monitored, though, by the Stasi. Yeah, 
Yes, it was, um, it was not easy to work as a journalist. Of course, following uh, reunification, uh, you were allowed, you could go and look at your East German secret police file, your Stasi file. When I got to see mine, it was 27 file boxes full of reports, about three and a half thousand pages. And it's bugging in the flat, surveillance, following, tracking. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes it was quite dramatic and quite exciting in a funny kind of way. If I occasionally I'd go out to uh, try and meet friends or contacts that I didn't want the Stasi to know I was seeing. And uh, you get in the car and you'd look and realize you were being followed. And then I try and lose them. And you, I did these occasionally few times these sort of high-speed car chases through the back streets of East Berlin just trying to shake off the tail uh, seldom succeeding but it was a menace they would intimidate I occasionally when I got on the wrong side of covering dissidents there were a couple of dissident stories that went on people criticizing the regime from within one of them was a writer Stefan Heim uh, they would then sort of block entrance to my flat you'd have Stasi people standing in the stairway not letting you letting you go out, but not letting anybody else come in. And it was just intimidation. And if you wrote a story that they didn't like, you'd get hauled into the foreign ministry and you'd be told off and you'd be told you'd be thrown out. And, but still, despite all that, you could, as a journalist, you just ferreted around and got stories. Mm. And, and, uh, and you were, I was going to say, you were physically intimidated a few times too. I was dragged out of my car once by the Stasi for trying to go somewhere they didn't want me to go, which was to visit Robert Haverman, who was a, who was East Germany's Sakharov. He was a physicist who'd be become a fierce critic of the regime and was under house arrest. Uh, and I thought I would try and make a bid to get out to see him. He was outside Berlin and I was about halfway there when I was stopped by three Stasi cars and then I was dragged out and thrown in a, in a ditch and sat on and told that I could disappear without trace in this place and I'd better watch my step. And that was, that was frightening. Mm -hmm. But... Um, Otherwise, it was more just being aware you were being bugged, following you around, and um, and 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 just feedback that they knew what you'd done and mm. be told off. But um, but nevertheless, you could you could get stories, and sometimes you were even fed stories as well. Mm. Mm. You never knew who your friends were. Uh, I had lots of friends, as I knew from you know half of them were informers. Some of them were actually full time Stasi agents. I knew that at the time that a couple of them were. Um, but you kind of thought, well, that just goes with the turf. You've got to live with that. You've got to live with being bugged and, and know that you've got to be wary. But on the other hand, they sometimes leaked stuff. I got good news, good stories from them. Actually, the, the authorities wanting something to get out or to trial balloons on things. Yeah. So, so you, you were there until the early 80s. So at that yes. time, would you have ever suspected what might happen by 1989? Did you think that was there an underlying feeling that it's an edifice, economically it's an edifice that will succumb sooner or later, or did you not have that feeling at all? No, funnily enough, the, on two levels, with brilliant hindsight, you could see it coming because the economy was disastrous. I mean, when they talked about, you know, economic advances, a lot of it was phony figures. They were cooking the books. Um, and, um, and, and you kind of knew it. I had a visit from our, our chief executive and we had a lunch where we had Zhabovsky, uh, the, the man who announced the opening of the war, but he was an editor of the main party paper. And he was very frank over lunch and he said, we've got no raw materials. We're technically way behind the West. It's a struggle. And actually the gap's getting bigger. 
So you knew that was... But on the other hand, it just seemed permanent. The wall seemed permanent. And um, I, I remember... So, and, and it was, I said, the two different worlds thing. I, I remember ch- a neighbour chatting to me uh, from, from our, our block. We lived, we were about 400 y- yards from the wall. And he suddenly said to me, what's on the other side of the wall down the road there? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, what is on the other side of that wall? Because all the maps in East Berlin had white space for West Berlin, no detail at all. And I said, well, it's vetting on the other side. Said, ah, of course, that makes sense. Now, he knew West Berlin from watching West Berlin television, but had no idea of the geography. So he had no idea what was 500 yards from his own flat because that wall was there and the other side was a mystery. And that was still, that was 1981. So you had the sense this is, this is not going to change. It had the air of permanence, but you knew the economy was, was an Achilles heel and was getting worse. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. This was, and I've always said it, the most important single event in, in post-war history, and not one to screw up. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. So uh, one of the things I talk about when I'm doing talks to students, and I, I, I'm doing a slideshow with it as well, I always have one photo that, that does uh, raise eyebrows because they think, what is that connected to Berlin? And that's uh, uh, a photo of solidarity with Lech Wałęsa uh, leading it. So I wanted to bring Alistair in to talk about that because obviously you covered part of that story in the early 80s. Could you see a link? Could you see that this is the first democratic movement that's been allowed in the Eastern Bloc to actually thrive, well, not thrive, but be allowed to exist? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's the most underestimated bit of the jigsaw puzzle. And it goes back to what we were all talking about earlier, the point at which the powers that be within NATO and the Pentagon and the Ministry of Defence thought something has changed. And in 82, when Lech Wałęsa formed Solidarność in the Gdansk shipyard, 
uh, and there was an attempt to undermine it, but ultimately there was not an attempt to stop it. And it grew, and the, the, the role of the papacy and the Pope backing it as well with the Black Madonna and all of that uh, gave it a kind of moral uh, dimension to, to folk in the West as well. Um, and my, my, my friend uh, Tim Ewart, who uh, a towering figure, and Mark knows him very well indeed as a, as a foreign correspondent, was the first to say to me, uh, this is the next Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and this will be the acid test uh, in Moscow uh, if they try and shut it down or let it breathe. And I can remember, uh, and I echo something Mark was saying about the penny not dropping, although you had that feeling at the back of your mind, going to Berlin for the 25th anniversary of the wall uh, for Channel 4 News uh, and saying here in Berlin, you know, there's absolutely no indication whatsoever that anything is going to change imminently. Uh, but what was going on in Poland and particularly in Gdansk uh, w w was the penny that needed to drop a little more loudly. Um, and I think that the the normality uh, and lucidity of Lech Wałęsa in getting that message out uh, around the world via ITN, via Reuters, the BBC and the rest of us uh, was utterly vital because at that point, in that short, sharp seven years, quite extraordinary when we reflect upon it, uh, everything changed. And, and Gorbachev was there and Perestroika and Glasnost and the rest of it. And it meant that those folk in Berlin who didn't even know what those white blocks meant uh, were in with a chance. Uh, and as we all know, because it's what we're talking about, mm. uh, behold, it happened just seven years later. Yeah, it's a very good point, Alistair. I'd add to that. I mean, uh, I... The East Germans were terrified of what was happening in Poland, of course. And there was a lot of talk. We forget that now. There's a lot of talk about Poland being invaded. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it was almost for a while assumed it would happen. Uh, looking at my files, I was writing stories, you know, as the assumption was that this was now on the cards. It was mm. a terrifying time in that sense. But I, Alice is absolutely right. It was That was the transformational event and period. Could, could I say... Um please, uh, how very strongly I, I agree with that. People often ask me about Gorby and Gorbachev and everything else, both Germans and, and also elsewhere. And I always have said, in my humble opinion, this thing really had its roots in the number two Lenin shipyard in Gdansk with yeah. Lech Walensky. Yes. That's where it began. And uh, I firmly, I firmly believe that. So I think that's entirely right what you've both said. So by that time, we're heading towards the, the late 80s and uh, resistance, uh, the peace movement's growing ever larger in East Germany. That was one of the main focal points for resistance under the umbrella of the peace movement. You were allowed to, to do some kind of protest. Uh, so, Robert, you were about to be assigned arguably the biggest job of your life in 1989. Would you agree with that? Uh, and so you, you were offered the job to be uh, commandant of the British sector. Uh, would you like to just give the listeners a little insight into what that was and what it comprised of I and mean, who you were in charge of too? Yes, well, um, you're certainly right. And I think of all the things that came, I had some really, really, really interesting life. I was the chief of staff in the Falklands at the, after, in the clearing up after the war and all the rest of it. Um, I was lucky enough to command a parachute. I had some really interesting things, but of all the things that came my way, having joined the army as an 18-year-old recruit, Private soldier, two three five eight five zero one four. All the things that came my way, 
certainly Berlin was by far and away the most challenging. So you're absolutely right about that. Um, it came as a, a su surprise. Um, I was the director of the defense program. The Minister of Defense suddenly uh, asked to go and see the chief of the general staff and told that this is what uh, they wanted me to do, to go to Berlin. I think it was probably known that, uh, unlike quite a lot of officers in the British Army, I was a reasonably fluent um, German speaker, which is important and helpful. And then thinking about the um, fascinating the preparation that happened before I went to Berlin, uh, I had to go and see because my responsibilities were going to be both military, of course, and diplomatic. Uh, I had a whole series of briefings, the last one of which was with Sir Geoffrey Howes, then the Foreign Secretary, extremely courteous and, and, and very nice. But I must say, I didn't really come away with a huge feeling of confidence at the end of it. But I did say to him, sir, can you tell me what chances there are of any change now once I'm going to Berlin? Uh, and he looked at me and he said, well, General, I suppose there's just this goes back to something you two have said, Mark and, and Alistair. I suppose there's a chance that the wall may become a little bit more porous, but essentially no change uh, in our lifetime, General. It's not going to change. So, you know, how, how really, how wrong can you be? So you get to Berlin, and the commandant had two responsibilities. First, called military. That's for command of the garrison, uh, for the good order of military discipline of the garrison. But I delegated, It's uh, the training um, responsibility was delegated um, necessarily to the brigade commander. That brigade consisted of three infantry battalions that were con configured and trained for, for urban warfare, but had no artillery which had it come, push, come to shove, would have been extremely important. Uh, we didn't have it. They only had mortars. We had a field squadron of engineers and our defence troop, a flight of the Army Air Corps and all the rest of it. Our medical arrangements were based on the British Military Hospital. At the garrison, the Western Allied garrison was about 10,000 strong when you include the Americans, much the most powerful. They had artillery. And the French, who had a mass of light panhard tanks, which couldn't be much use to anybody. But it was a strong, <laughs> it was a strong division. Actually, it would have given. Well, you know, form, don't you, Alistair? It would have been. Uh, it would have, um, yeah, a very high uh, reverse gear. But anyway, um, so military responsibility, of course, yes, absolutely, necessarily so. Uh, but also diplomatic responsibility because, it, effectively, I was the British representative that in. Berlin. So I had two bosses, really. The first was the commander-in-chief in BAOR, who was General Sir Peter Inge. Uh, and um, the second was Her Britannic Majesty's ambassador in Berlin, Christopher Malaby, who actually, fortunately, in a way, I had known since I was a child. Not that that made any difference. There was no nepotism going on. But the important thing was, I mean, that was really a recipe, wasn't it? for disaster when you have this sort of divided chain of responsibility and command like that, but actually it worked really well for two reasons. One is they were both very, if I may put it like this, extremely sensible and grounded people. And secondly, because they actually let us get on with it. We were very isolated in Berlin. Uh, we had a lot of responsibility, but we were tremendously uh, well supported. And my diplomatic staff is unique, really, for a soldier, I suppose, to have a diplomatic staff. But they were really good. You don't always find that with the diplomats, sometimes not very um, robust. But in my uh, circumstances and my experience, they were. I had a very clever and effective political advisor who had served in our embassy in Moscow. And the fact that he was a fluent Russian speaker turned out to be very important 
because I had quite a lot of problems um, with the Russians later on, uh, on behalf of Hanukkah rather than for any other reason. So um, all the dispatches, diplomatic dispatches, went out under my name. And I tell you, I didn't allow any of them to go out until I'd read them first and made sure that I didn't want something being said that I actually either would have disagreed with or felt was not perhaps strictly right. But it's terribly important to remember that the ultimate legislative and executive authority in the Western sectors of Berlin was vested in the persona of the three Western Allied commandants, American, French, and British. And no law could be passed. Of course, Berlin was administered by the duly elected representatives in the Zanat, quite right so too, and that was a democratic process. But in the end, the laws that they passed had to be signed off, normally done within the Allied Commandatora by those three commandants. And so that really is um, something, it had been agreed at Yalta in February 45 and then confirmed Potsdam in July 45, but that was the way, amazingly, the way that it had been since the end uh, of the Second World War, it, it is absolutely extraordinary, really. I think to to remember to remember that now, and, and that was the way it worked. Did, did I explain that properly? And did I answer your question? Perhaps not. Yeah, that's that absolutely fine. So it's 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 almost like you're in charge of the baton, which is being handed from one commandant to the next. Judging when you you look at the history of the commandants that have been in charge of yeah. the sectors, yeah, but none of, the had what, <laughs> none of them had to put up with what happened to me. Absolutely, <laughs> it was such a complicated business, and the thing is why we're talking now, to you. I think, and I'm sure Mark and Alistair, you will agree with this, is how very very easily it could all have gone off the rails and gone yes. very seriously wrong. And actually, yeah. it's a great tribute in a way to the self discipline of the German people of the. East German people, I suppose one should say, that actually that didn't happen because I can think of a few places in the world where Great, something like this, a yeah. revolution of this kind, would have ended in serious bloodshed. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's yeah. another uh, another very interesting uh, part of our planning. You know, was how are we going to cope with that if there'd been mm. shooting that might, for example, and it was a near thing once or twice, have forced people over the wall into the Western sectors seeking protection. Well, we were going to try and protect them using armored vehicles, but. I think we can all see what a really difficult and dangerous situation that would have brought about. Point I was going to make, Ian, actually, about also uh, with retrospect, I threw a huge party in East Berlin in May 89 for the 30th anniversary of the Reuters Bureau. And that was did that in a hotel in the middle of town, had about 150 guests, sort of diplomats and artists and, and a lot of people I'd known, and a lot of sort of dissident-y difficult types. And looking in the looking in the file, the Stasi operation to monitor that was remarkable. They uh, took out ceiling panels to put in cameras in the in the room where it was taking place. They put in half a dozen agents to pinpoint certain people, and the pinpointing was all around the East Germans who were there. And you got a sense of the paranoia that was clearly looking at it now. There was a paranoia which was clearly growing at that time. Uh, mm, and, mm. and of course, later they they lost control of it completely. So, but I, was, I, but I was going to bring you in anyway to ask the question: yeah. as someone who now, who by then eighty nine was not living uh, no. in East Berlin, but outside looking in, and with all your contacts there and your friends, uh, and you've got the peace movement building, especially by September and October, and the authorities aren't cracking down, as say the Chinese had in Tiananmen Square. Yeah. Did you feel? something imminent, and I mean very imminent, was was going to happen? Or 
Yeah, I think by the, when they didn't open fire on that big march in Leipzig, I think that was the turning point mm. where they could have done, and clearly they were ready to do so, but they didn't. And then we went through, you know, the, the regime started to collapse. Honecker was ousted. Uh, it was day-to-day trying to cope, um, letting people... People had started leaving via Hungary, first of all, then via the West German embassy in Prague. People were leaving the country uh, for the first time, and, and it was unravelling. So, yes, I think it... I didn't think anybody expected the wall to be open, but I think everybody thought they would ease travel restrictions and mm. that actually it would bring about a political crunch point at some stage. But I don't think anybody envisaged that the wall would open very quickly or that the country would collapse in that yeah. sense. Did they, did they, Alistair? I don't think. No, I don't, I don't think so. And I, I think the other thing, you know, we, we use the language of the, you know, the Velvet Revolution reflecting mm. upon it. Um, and Mark's point about the party and... I remember very clearly in, in Czechoslovakia and in Prague, Havel, who went on to become president, you know, was an underground artist as well and a great playwright um, and all the rest of it. But it's also just just briefly worth recalling from a macro level that, that the Hungarians and the Czechs were kind of up and running already because they'd been running quasi um capitalist economies quite successfully for some years anyway. (laughs) And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people like Enver Hodja and Albania that took a heck of a lot longer to to, to come round to the right way uh, insofar as they have done. And also, I think one of the memories that is burnt most sharply and bitterly into my mind is the the termination of the Ceausescus and how, in a sense, the Berlin transition... I mean, maybe partly because of good people like Robert and his uh, colleagues um, and because the Germans are the Germans, was almost done amicably and peacefully compared to what happened in places like Romania, which was out-and-out civil war and very bloody. Yeah. Mm. So, Robert, uh, by the time we're getting towards November, so say October, I'd written quite a lot about the characters of the the men that were in charge of the the allied sectors one of whom is you obviously and i'd i'd said they were the right men at the right time in the right place uh what were your relationships like with the uh the two other allied commandants uh for france and and the uh, united states well first of all it's a very generous thing you you've just said and, and if you include well, in that thank you um, they, they were the, the, my two fellow commandants in the United States sector was uh, an American Major General, Ray Haddock. He was an artilleryman, extremely intelligent, uh, intense man, very able, a very professional guy. He had been responsible for bringing Pershing II into the um, field artillery, United States field artillery in, in, in Europe. And um, he was a very, very capable bloke, serious. But um, I became very fond of him. German wife. So speaking a very strange kind of Schwabian German. But anyway, uh, <laughs> he's a good bloke. It turned out that Francois Kahn, by an amazing coincidence, uh, we had been in the same part of the French Airborne. I was with the 3rd French Marine Parachute Regiment for a time, who incidentally very nearly succeeded in killing me. Uh, and um, it turned out amazingly that Francois Kahn as a colonel, he's 10 years older than me, had been the um, the the, uh, the boss of the board of inquiry that looked into into a very serious incident when a lot of my soldiers and myself were quite badly hurt, jumping with the French Air Force in southwestern oh. France. But he was a great man, 
a very fine, very experienced person. Uh, he invited me to go and, and uh, visit his uh, his garrison two days after I arrived. And at the end of it, um, I was able, having inspected them, to address them in French. And you should know that the difference was absolutely extraordinary because the French are very, um, are very uh, protective of their language. And I remember him saying once, ah, but the great thing about Robert, il est francophone, he speaks French. And this really mattered to them. But he was a great bloke, a really good guy. And of course, it's terribly important that we understood each other because although we didn't realize at the beginning of the complexes that were to come our way. And I think actually what happened there was a perfect example of effective inter-allied cooperation. It, it worked really, really well. Uh, and, you know, by the, t by the time uh, of the opening of the war, we were, we were spending, um, we were meeting every single day, the three generals uh, together, not just our staffs, but we to discuss what we needed to do. And we were altering and developing our plans all the time. So they were fine people and they were trusted friends. And actually, I think it was greatly to the benefit of Berlin that that was indeed, it did turn out to be the case. I've kept in touch, not so much with Ray Haddock. He's unwell now, sadly. Mm. The years have caught up with him, like they're catching up with me. But Francois can, he's 88 now and still... And still getting strong, magnificent man. Yes, uh, his uh, his replies to some of my questions were fantastic. So I, I asked him <laughs> because you and I had talked about it I love him about if the, if, if the if the if the balloon went up and and the, and you'd be battling in the streets of uh, Berlin and and you'd obviously give, given me your uh, your assessment of what would happen and and you gave me a lot of detail. Whereas when I asked Francois what would have happened to uh, the French sector, uh, silence on the line. And then he said, <laughs> magnificent oblivion. Well, of course, he's, uh, he's absolutely right. I mean, it would have been Third World War without any shadow of mm. doubt. I, I think actually that the garrison could have given a fairly bloody nose. It would have, it would mm. have been... The thing to remember about what we were there for, we were sacrificial tripwire. Actually, had yes. there been violence, yes. and you know, we can all say, "Oh, well, unlikely was that, or not likely," but had it happened, we'd have been goners, yes. uh, without any shadow right. of doubt, uh, including all those little panhard tanks. Well, trying to keep the T seventy twos away, but still, um, no. That, but they were, the, those those two, my my um, comrades in arms. We were lucky because they they were. They were good, good blokes. But go, going up to say the 9th of November, were you getting as the commandant? Were you intelligence on the ground? Was it giving you any a heads up, so to speak, of there might be trouble brewing? Well, obviously we were watching very carefully what was happening, and and it really began to really show itself with that huge exodus of people out of the GDR into Hungary, and then Hungary opening her frontiers so that large numbers of them came all the way right back round in, into West Berlin. Uh, and we were watching that. We were watching very carefully what began to show signs of increasing violence in the two great industrial cities of the southern part of the GDR, Dresden and Leipzig. You know, and then that violence that spread all the way up, washing past the eastern boundaries of East Berlin, right the way up to, to, to the Baltic. So we were we were watching all that very carefully. But what I think really took us by surprise was the 
speed of collapse because I don't think we had yeah. it was really interesting what you were saying Mark and you were saying yeah. Alistair but you know your 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 inside knowledge of, of how rotten actually the whole damn thing was to mm. the core but you know we never really understood quite how rotten the heart of the people's army of the national folks army was because if you mm. looked at them on the anniversary celebrations in in East Berlin it looked like an absolutely solid immovable block of people who would have you know because they were Germans they'd have been formidable fighters but actually when this whole thing started to happen the wall opened they evaporated when we yeah. got across, which we did very quickly, we discovered that all their vehicles were bombed up with second-line ammunition, and you you only ever do that if you're preparing for war. So they were doing that, but their heart wasn't in it. Wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So it's really yeah. interesting what what you two yeah. had to say about that, mm. which it absolutely, I think, um, mirrors my my own from our, yeah. our side of the, the wall, our, our own um, knowledge and experience of it. But we were taken by surprise by the speed. I think, and um, you know, um, well, I better not say too much more about that. <laughs> Can I just chip in briefly on on that point because uh, about the army, and, and, and I don't have anywhere near the, the the knowledge that Robert has. But I tell you, as a, as an observing journalist, one thing that that struck me, and has now come more clearly and more loudly, perhaps to me, given what uh, Robert just said, is that actually, if you look at the footage of the time. The faces of the young soldiers gazing over from the east into the west are very young. Yeah. And it's reminiscent of the final days of Hitler, mm -hmm. uh, where he was surrounded by teenagers in the end because either the elderly folk had died or they'd done a runner. And that thought hadn't dawned on me so clearly until Robert just said what he did. Mm. That, 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 you know, the final line of defence of the wall were teenagers. But Alistair, yeah. when you say that, did you... Did either did you discern bewilderment also as well as you know yeah. the fact yeah. that they because that's how we were what we thought we saw it is that yes. what you would that have yes I think you know, again with years of experience that Mark and I both have you can see angry faces with rifles held and you see that in Vietnam and and you see mm. it in China uh, or you can see young folk thinking what the hell am I doing here yeah and I saw what the hell am I doing here. Yes. Well, it's one of the uh, the eyewitnesses that I interviewed that was on the East German side. He was at officer training school in a college on the Czech border. The two to three weeks before the wall opened, they were having riot training. Uh, well, obviously, they they shipped them in lorry loads of shields, truncheons, everything, and that's all they did for two or three weeks. And as they were relaxing every evening in their in their community halls, they he said they were all petrified, wondering what's going to happen, what are we doing? Because they were being giving these slogans by the government of we are going to be repressing these fascist invaders that want to to uh, undermine the country. Mm. Uh, very similar to China, but it just had a, obviously a much better, healthier ending. But so, Alistair, if I, if I can talk about you, what were you? Uh, what were you doing at the time when you were giving you were given the news that you've got to get over to Berlin? Oh. <laughs> well, just, I will tell you that story. But the other the other thing that that just struck me as well as you it, it, is that folk listening to this conversation of our age range 
Well, you know, don't forget for a moment that at home you had the miners' strike mark to mm-hmm. oh, Thatcher, yes. final oh, days of and what have you, um, and you had a huge focus of attention still on Gorbachev going to America, going to yeah. G7 meetings and the rest of it. That that was very much a backdrop to it. So Berlin, I fear to say, in eighty nine until it hit the fan, yeah. was was a, a, a priority two at best three story. Mm. Mm. And and in a way, that provides a backdrop to my anecdote. So my wife Sally and I had been invited uh, to have dinner with uh, David Craig, chief of the defence staff. And uh, as we were just making sure that the bow tie was tight and Sally's hair was as beautiful as it always is, um, the, the car phone rang um, and it was uh, ITN saying, uh, we have intelligence, and it may well have been from Robert for all I know, uh, that, that tomorrow's the day. Um, there've been, you know, there've been demonstrations and people peering at the wall and pushing and shoving and this, that, and the other. But we think tomorrow is the day when it's going to come down, uh, and and you're our front man. And I said, well, that's that's terrific, but I'm I'm, I'm due to have a, a a dinner at the moment with whom? With whom? And I said, well, the chief of the defence staff, um, uh, the uh, <laughs> minister of state for the armed services, <laughs> Archie Hamilton, a uh, chap called Richard Luce, who went on to govern Gibraltar, and they and ITN to their great wisdom said you have your dinner uh, don't drink um and and then we'll get a uh, we'll get a car to take to a hotel and you're and you're on an airplane at 5 a.m the next morning and i said okay problem is i'm wearing black tie and that's all i have and and so sally then phoned our nanny who packed an overnight bag that that then came up by motorbike <laughs> so we had this most remarkable dinner um and it genuinely was very informative and, and i can remember very clearly um archie taking in the same optimistic view uh, that Geoffrey Howe, who also a great man and a lovely guy, not a bad chancellor either in his day, um, had, had said to Robert uh, that, that you know, we think something is happening. Yes, we think that with a little bit of luck, uh, the shift will take place and be permanent. But but the real change in Eastern Europe will take a lot, lot longer. Uh, and, and you know, wrong, wrong, wrong and, and, and hurrah for wrong. Uh, but Craig was was interesting um, uh, as well uh, about the fact that the, you know, and it, it again, all of these things weave together so nicely um, and said, you know, we have top calibre people there. We have top calibre commanders. Uh, and I didn't know Robert at that juncture, uh, but also, you know, the men and the women who are stationed there uh, are not there by accident um, because whether they are in what were called the missions, um, uh, uh, whether they were doing intelligence gathering or whatever, uh, they knew where they were, and the Ministry of Defence knew the significance of it, and so uh, very good people were sent there. So it was all very useful, and and uh, and I I didn't drink, and I did duly go to the hotel, and I did duly get the plane from Gatwick at five in the morning. And I, if I may say so, I have a lovely photograph of you. Uh, I think you actually might have interviewed me beside the wall, but anyway, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a fine photograph of you looking all of 18 years old, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did interview you, and I, and I don't think that I've got the... I don't think I've got the photograph. One of my favourite photographs, funnily enough, is, is a similar, standing by the Brandenburg Gate, uh, with Jon Snow um, and John Suchet, uh, two fine correspondents and, and two fine friends, uh, because um, the ITN sort of pretty well threw... Uh, a lot at it, although we had a, uh, you know, we had an advanced party trying to echo uh, people like Robert in planning and stuff. Uh, but but once it was game on, then um, uh, a lot of people uh, came out. Nick Gowing, I remember, was one of the first to go deep into the East and produce some uh, compelling reports at the time. 
Yeah. And uh, was there any kind of, uh, well, there was, I'm just leading the question, really. Uh, what, what was the kind of uh, territorial scraps you had for the best coverage at, at the prime uh, sites, shall we say? Oh, well, I suppose, I mean, anyone in my business, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 there's the moment when um, uh, Walter Cronkite announced the, the, the death of Jack Kennedy, which is, is you take your glasses off and you look at the camera. Uh, the other is Jack Kennedy, uh, Ich bin ein Berliner. Uh, and that setting, um, mm. uh, nobody uh, could better, uh, none of the great theatrical uh, producers or directors could better the Brandenburg Gate uh, and the bit in front of it. And so all of the broadcasters had set up these little stations and uh, uh, NBC, CBS, um, uh, ABC, ourselves, the BBC, um, and and uh, but they were all there, and and, and John Simpson standing there, towering figure, uh, and and the American uh, heroes, and, and we were all looking around, wondering where the great Dan Rather was, who I think most of us quietly, secretly, although we never have said it to Dan, was the global giant of our particular trade, but he wasn't there. So anyway, out of the blue, suddenly this cherry picker, as we call it, you know, a thing that goes up on a crane mm-hmm. and people used to repair wires and what have you, swung into view. <laughs> and it was Dan Rather saying, and here at the Brandenburg <laughs> Gate. And, and of course, <laughs> he, he scooped us all visually and uh, uh, and with power. But it was an extraordinary moment. Um, and, and what folk at home don't realise um, is that you know, they see as, uh, a, a, a box with a uh, a face and all sorts of goings on in the background, um, but but it was it was like Waterloo Station or Paddington Station with all of the comings and goings behind camera for the crews because um, you know, this was, and I've always said it, uh, the most important single event in in post war history, and not one to screw up. Mm. Yeah. And what, what was the atmosphere <laughs> like when you were looking at the crowds? There wasn't oh, any kind of sense of danger or. I'd had an answer in my mind halfway through your question. Uh, there, there was a euphoria, um, and, uh, and which maybe is naive. And, and in my trade, you've got to be very careful not to get carried away with the story. But I genuinely think there was a euphoria. Because, I mean, bear in mind, yeah, a lot of them were my sort of age, and we were people who'd grown up, you know, we were at university during the Vietnam War. Um, we were we, we were lefties, some of us, um, uh, or liberals, uh, <laughs> very, very few from the right wing uh, who maybe took a, a, a slightly different view of it. Uh, but to us, this was the defeat of communism, uh, and it was actually a celebration because it was about democracy, it was about free markets, it was about people being able to do their own thing. Um, and and that, in that sense, it was celebratory. We, we, you know, we shared their passion. Um, and I, I genuinely, to this day, don't think that there was a moment that crossed my mind from the moment that I'd arrived in in early November, um, sixth or seventh, whichever it was, uh, thinking, God, this could all go horribly wrong. There was a weird assumption that it would be okay mm. and that the right outcome would be achieved. And mm. touch wood, it I, was. Yeah, I flew. I have to say, I was uh, I was editor-in-chief editor at Reuters at that stage. And um, so I was told, on the evening it happened, the wall had opened. I was absolutely stunned. I got a phone call from uh, the East Berlin, the woman in our East Berlin office who'd been the assistant there since, oh, since the end of the 50s. And I just heard this quavering voice just saying, Mark, they've opened the wall. And it was just the total disbelief in her voice. And I said, I heard. I said, it is amazing. She said, I never thought I'd see this. 
And she was in tears. And I flew out the next day, and I just pick up something that both Robert and Alistair said. I flew out the next day and went, of course, straight to the wall. And the East German soldiers were standing on top of the flat bits near the Brandenburg Gate and were along the other stretches. And they just looked stunned. They didn't know how to deal. They're just watching all these people hammering away at the wall already, walking past it. They'd opened up sections of it already. Um, and it was just this look of sheer incomprehension on their faces. Didn't look threatening, just looked completely stunned. They're fascinating. And how uh, did you manage to get across the other side? At yes. All? Yeah, 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 yeah. I went, I went through uh, for the day. And I, in fact, I walked back through the, an opening in the wall. It was two days later. To um, and cross back in and out again. It was just it, it got opened up so quickly in the next couple of days. Yeah. Different bits of it. That well, was just the Mark, people. what was that big hotel in the east that that was kept lit up all through the night, even when everything else was switched off? It wasn't the Europa. Maritime um, was it the Maritime? Ah, oh, the Maritime. Yes, the one. Yeah, yes. Paul Davis yeah. and I went through yeah. um, uh, to that and and and, and had a beer. Um, and it was strange because that that point that we've all made about the uh, not so much the topography as just the, the the atmosphere of the east that because anyone who did go there from the west who was a business person or whatever that's where they would dine or just, perhaps have yes. a beer or whatever and it was lit up like <laughs> like a little tabernacle in the middle of yeah, all of this that's right. uh, drab darkness. <laughs> yes. So Robert, were you, were you when you when you look back at it now? Were you surprised at how? bloodless it actually was like i said uh, remember alistair you 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 weren't allowed to pay in ostmark from the married team you had to pay in western money remember that i'm sure absolutely yeah. um hard he, currency hard currency yeah exactly yeah. um yes i i think um you know it was what i was saying earlier really just to say the question again the years are catching up with me um no, no, don't worry. I, I was just going to say, having worked with uh, the West Berlin police as well, were you surprised, or not, not surprised, relieved, I should say, at how uh, without any kind of violence or uh, stress really was involved in, the, in the, the wall opening and then the subsequent few days afterwards where it was very peaceful, uh, the flow of people going to and fro, and there wasn't any kind of reaction... Was that the kind of thing that uh, you were constantly monitoring, or did you think that it's done, we don't have to worry anymore? We kept a very close eye on what was going on because I think we we all felt, you know, it could have it could have turned quickly. Um, the fact that it didn't and was a joyous business was really, uh, you know, first of all, I think it's almost a kind of miracle, but secondly, it was a, a matter of. Of huge relief to us, and and of huge joy actually. If one's honest about it as well, mm, mm. You know, it was a fantastic thing. People were talking about you know, the great victory for freedom and democracy, but and at that time, I think we all we all felt a, a sort of huge surge of optimism. Certainly, I think that that was the way that it was. But we we were very careful to keep an eye on what was going on and we certainly didn't uh, we didn't relax our states of alert or anything like that mm, mm. we were we were there to try and help in whatever way we could we had a very good relationship uh, with the west berlin police with under their president a man called Georg Skertz. they were very good and very efficient very um uh, very um cooperative really 
And you remember that story I told you about what happened the night that the wall broke open when I went to the Soviet garrison? Mm. Do you remember that story? Uh, and that, you know, that shows the, the value of the good cooperation of the West Berlin police and the fact that they guarded that memorial the way they did and the message of of of, um, of gratitude that came from the Soviet commander-in-chief in, by name to me, which was unique, using unique uh, means of communication, saying... Um, Thank you, because what we'd done was to ask um, Skertz to put uh, his uh, Bereitschaftspolizei around the memorial to protect it because so many East Berliners hated the Russians and there could have been mm. violence. If there'd been violence, where would it have stopped? And so uh, I asked him to put that protection in place. This very quick, I told the Russians what I was doing uh, in, in, that, uh, in that platoon regarding the memorial. And uh, very, very quickly, the message came back from um, General Snetkov, who was an ex- Boris Snetkov, was an extremely unpleasant piece of work. But the message came back, thank you for what you have done. It will not be forgotten. And then funny things started to happen, like the problem I'd been having, I'd been putting ropes and ladders on the bank of the spray to make it easier for refugees to get out and so on, and getting messages from the Russians on behalf of Hanukkah, move that lot. A lot of problems. They all evaporated. And a medal came through the post and bottles of vodka <laughs> and a Russian fur hat, general's hats. And, but it just shows you what one simple thing that perhaps prevented violence, I don't know whether it did or not, can actually turn out to be really quite important mm. in the scheme of things. Mm. And that happened well, that night. Very amazing, really. We, we, we need to close soon. And we, we yeah. could easily talk about this all day. Uh, yeah. What I'd like to do is, by closing is, is ask each of you, what do you think, uh, it's a catch-all, but what do you think the legacy of the Berlin Wall is? And if I could start with Mark. Um, I think, well, I think Berlin's just turned into such a wonderful city as a reunified city. And you get the sense when you're there that they appreciate that it's now one city particularly the, the, the Berliners who lived there for many years, they're still excited that it's, it's a reunified city. So that's a, and it's a cultural centre, it's a lively place. The Berliners have a particular humour and character that I, that I adore. Um, they were never very good Nazis, for example. They were always, <laughs> had far too good a sense of humour for that. Um, and, but of course, the, the, the longer legacy is that East Germany was wrecked economically by communism and still hasn't really recovered. You know, 30 years later, it's still behind and people are still leaving. They still have this exodus. Apart from the, the, the cities like Leipzig and Dresden, which are doing OK, the rest is still declining outside Berlin. So uh, that's the, the longer, longer term legacy. Mm. And how about you, Alistair? I guess in an ironic way that Merkel can become the chancellor that she's been, yeah. uh, a, a woman from the East um, mm. who's not only dominated a united Germany, but also uh, dominated uh, uh, a united Europe. Um, and, and who will succeed her? We shall, we shall know. But I, th- I think it is genuinely that point about uh, a reunited uh, Europe none of us ever forget 1418, none of us ever forget 3945, um, and and a divided Europe and a divided Berlin were a legacy of 3945, and that has been put right. Uh, yeah. We now fight our battles uh, in in uh, uh, in Brexit and, and in the European Union, um, but fortunately it doesn't involve shooting each other uh, or locking people up. So no. that's a legacy I'll buy and support and shout hurrah for. Very good summary. 
And I think it's fitting that Robert, you you uh, you end the discussion with uh, a lovely anecdote you had about uh, reunification itself. And just before that, I was very interested in what you said, Mark, about the Osses and Wesses. There's still, and it'll take a long time for mm. all those years of communism to work their way. It'll take two generations, possibly more, I think. Yeah. Uh, and there's still, as you know, we all know, a lot of envy between the Osses and Wesses. The Osses saying, why didn't you give us and don't you give us more? Why don't you? You can afford yes. it. Why don't you? And the Wesses saying, you haven't earned it, you lot over there. Yeah. So that 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 is, I think, and you absolutely agree with you, it's an enduring problem. As far as the wall itself is concerned, I think the lesson of history, really, the final lesson is that, uh, and we all need to learn these fundamental lessons of history, but walls don't work. They don't work. They didn't work there. And actually, in the end, uh, they, they won't work. And could I just, just be allowed to tell you two little tiny stories? Uh, I was, because I was the chairman commandant in October at the time of German reunification, I was the one tasked to give the farewell speech in the Berlin Parliament on behalf of the Western Allies, which I um, duly did. And uh, I used a, a phrase uh, as part of this speech spoken by Churchill, very wisely in my opinion, shortly after the end of the Second World War, the division of Germany is a tragedy which cannot endure. And I was able to say, Arbidi tragedius yet's vorbei, the tragedy is now over. And as I said that, 12 feet away from me, sitting in the front row, was Willy Brandt, the great governing mayor of Berlin when the wall had been put up, and the tears were pouring down his face. I will never forget that. And then finally... Susie, my darling wife and I were invited to stand on the dais. We were the only non-Germans there when the German flag, huge flag, was hauled up on top of that 100-foot-high flagpole in front of the Reichstag building again, I suppose, because I was the chairman commandant at the time. And I will never forget, there were a million Germans or more in the low ground in front of that building as the flag went up, singing tumultuously, Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles. Now, I don't mean that in a negative sense, but I no. will never forget that because that was a real moment of history. And then we walked back through the building, and by chance I found myself walking beside Co, Chancellor Co, great big tall man, as you remember. Mm. And uh, I said to him, for want of being polite, um, Chancellor, may I congratulate you on this great moment uh, of, of history for the German people? And he looked down at me and I thought, God, I've said something I shouldn't have said. And he smiled, a great smile crossed his face. And he said to me, Commandant, we could never possibly have done this without you allies. Now that is history. You know, and I was not a diplomat. I'm certainly not a politician of any sort. But I was a soldier. And what an extraordinary yeah. thing to happen. And I never forget it as long as I live. Amazing. That's amazing. Amazing service. Well, yeah. chap, chaps, that's uh, all we have time for, as they say. But uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on board and, and just giving us a, a small sample of your uh, your memories from such a, an iconic time and iconic city. So thank you very much indeed. That was Major General Sir Robert Corbett, Mark Wood and Alistair Stewart in conversation with Ian McGregor. And if you'd like to listen to an interview specifically with Ian McGregor about his Checkpoint Charlie book, you can find that at historyextra.com. Just search for Berlin Wall. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on witchcraft in modern France.
collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.